Hey everyone, we've got another great lineup this week, and before we get to it, a couple brief announcements. Don't forget that we have two live shows coming up at GTM Solar Summit in May in Arizona, and our Grid Edge World Forum in June in San Jose, California. Come see us on stage, drink a cocktail with us, heckle us, whatever you want to do. Come to those events because they are the best networking and learning opportunities in this industry, bar none. There's so much good content there. And again, a lot of great networking events. Head on over to greentechmedia.com slash events. Use the promo code ENERGYGANG, all one word, ENERGYGANG, for a 15% discount on either conference. You can't pass that up. Secondly, don't forget to subscribe to the other GTM podcast I produce and co-host with Shale Khan, our senior VP of GTM Research. It's called The Interchange. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And in this show, we debate and discuss the top news, and we try to provide analysis to what's going on every week. In the interchange, we tend to go a bit deeper into the numbers behind certain trends. You'll find links to subscribe in our show notes. I think you'll find it's a nice complement to your energy podcasting diet. Finally, thanks to our sponsor, Keiko New Energy, the fastest-growing solar inverter company in the Americas. Keiko's been in business for more than 100 years and has been making superior, German-quality PV inverters since the 1990s. In fact, it's been manufacturing many of them right in San Antonio, Texas, since 2013. With a wide variety of residential, commercial, and utility-scale inverters, Keiko works with developers and installers in every corner of the solar market, making it the preferred brand across the U.S. and throughout the Americas. Learn more about Keiko's superior quality and service at keiko-newenergy.com. That's Keiko, K-A-C-O, dash newenergy.com. And now on to the show. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. To many, France's ongoing elections are the latest showdown between the liberal world order and a new brand of right-wing populism sweeping the globe. That narrative, while yes, a bit oversimplified, follows a similar path in energy. France's elections are pitting nuclear versus renewables, closed markets versus open, and disruption versus protectionism. As we near the May 7th runoff election between Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen, we consider the future of the world's leading nuclear energy power during a time of political volatility and electricity market transformation. Then, here we go again. Yesterday, shots were fired, and they could mark the beginning of a new solar trade war between America and the rest of the world. And under Trump, the outcome of this one is anyone's guess. Finally, the UK went coal-free for a day recently. We place its significance. I'm with two of my favorite people, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine's a partner with 38 North Solutions and comes to us from our fair capital city of Washington, D.C. Hello, Catherine. Hi. We're approaching 100 days of the Trump presidency. How are you and the rest of the city holding up? We're hanging in and uh, looking forward to the climate march on Saturday. And Melania Trump celebrated her 47th birthday in D.C. this week. Were you invited to that? No, you know, it was just family. <laughs> <laughs> in New York City is Generate Capital's president, Jigger Shaw. He's normally in his home studio or coming to us from his office in San Francisco. But today we have found him in the lobby of the Hilton Chelsea 
in Manhattan. Um, what brings you to the Hilton in Manhattan? Well, I was at the Sunshine's Bond Conference in downtown and headed uptown and got a whole bunch of traffic. And so to meet the uh, time allotted, I figured I'd duck into a hotel. So for any listeners, apologies for any background noise, but uh, it's certainly manageable here. I saw, Jigger, that you were on the Positive podcast this week and you made the host Positive Phil cry with all your, your business acumen. <laughs> did you listen to the final show? I did. He <laughs> cried with optimism. That's right. And I was on Nico Johnson's Suncast this week as well. We had a really good discussion about solar business models and about politics and about podcasting in general. So that was a fun one for me. Um, let's move on. Let's actually get into the show now. And we're going to make our way over to France, where the country's presidential election has been pretty wild. We're not going to pretend to be experts on the intricacies of French politics here, nor are we going to go overboard with parallels to the American election, as so many pundits like to do. But they are a little irresistible, so I'm going to offer up a little bit of background here. Bear with me. The first round of the French presidential election just took place, and now two candidates square off in the final round of voting on May 7th. Uh, Emmanuel Macron is the former finance minister, and he represents the social liberal En Marche party. Marine Le Pen represents the far-right National Front Party. And Le Pen's name may actually sound more familiar to Americans because she's been getting more attention here, and that's because her brand of populism, some might say demagoguery, echoes President Donald Trump. So it's also reflective of UK politician Boris Johnson and others who've pushed Britain's exit from the European Union. Now, there are a lot of very important differences between what happened in America and the UK and what's going on in France. But we can certainly say that anti-globalization angst is fueling a rise in populism among industrialized countries. Now, with that context set, we're going to weigh in on how France's elections may impact that country's energy policy, because France is going through quite a radical reevaluation of its electricity mix. It gets about 75% of its electricity from nuclear, but back in 2015, Current French President François Hollande set a policy that would roll back older nuclear power plants and set a target of 50% nuclear by 2025, and he wants to fill the gap with more renewables and efficiency. So now the two presidential candidates squaring off, Macron and Le Pen, are sparring over what to do with nuclear. It's part of an even bigger debate over nationalizing the energy giant EDF, expanding or limiting energy trading with the EU, and mixing variable renewables with a really high nuclear grid. Okay, I've gone on long enough. I just wanted to provide some big context there because we haven't really covered France in the past. Catherine, talk a little bit more about what France's nuclear debate is all about. Uh, Stephen, you have to learn how to pronounce French names first. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's interesting because Macron really is centrist and he kind of wants to continue on the trajectory that they've been on, which is there are 58 nuclear plants that are nearing retirement in the, to various degrees. And he really does want to continue on that path and reduce their, um, their fleet by you know, cap it at 50% of their share by 2025, whereas Le Pen wants to really drop back and say, you know, we need to keep all uh, everything we do within our borders 
Um, and, and she's very bullish on nuclear, on retaining that fleet and extending the lifetime beyond even what I would think physics would support. She wants a lot more solar. She wants bioenergy. She wants a moratorium on wind. For some reason, she hates wind. It's a visceral thing for her. Um, and she wants all, all of EDF, which is their UDF, which is their um, utility, to be renationalized 100%. So it all be within the borders. And this whole thing is tricky. And this it's not only speaks to nuclear, but everything that they produce because they export 72%. I mean, 72 terawatt hours for every 32 terawatt hours that they import. So they export more than double what they import. And this, you know, in the EU, there's a system, it's a grid system. And if you try to close off your borders, I think the costs are going to go up for one thing. And you just won't have as an efficient a system, as efficient a system. So I think um, the nuclear debate feeds into that. Remember, Germany has stopped their nuclear power program and they are not happy with the fact that France's fleets sit on the on the other side of the river to them so they would like for France to also decommission their fleet but um it really does speak to whether they're going to stay within this sort of larger grid larger EU or whether they really want to close off their entire system so Jigger, tell me what your perspective is on this nuclear transition in France and how it plays into the current political climate. Well, I think that, you know, it, it starts from the premise that too much of anything can be bad, even good things. So, I mean, I think too much wind and solar can be bad. And in this case, too much nuclear can be bad. And what ends up happening is you end up having a lot of instability. Um, and so that's why the French government has sort of agreed to reduce the nuclear uh, percentage from 75% to 50 and replace it with doubling the wind and solar capacity by 2022. Also, I would say that France, as much as, uh, as it's a country, you know, within the U.S. context, it's a state, and figuring out how it better trades electricity across, um, across Europe matters, right? And it actually allows uh, for cheaper integration costs of... Uh, their existing nuclear, but also of solar and wind, right? And so I think that I, I think that's the sort of technocratic reality, uh, which is what they passed into law in 2015. Uh, from the politics standpoint, you just have this weird thing where uh, Manhattan Institute of the United States is sort of similar, where they're you know hugely pro nuclear, hugely anti wind, and amazingly pro solar. For whatever reason, these you know groups always love solar. So. Le Pen loves solar as well, um, but they don't actually embrace the full totality of the change of the grid, right? So they're not fully embracing battery storage, fully embrace, embracing demand response, grid edge technologies. They're sort of continuing to run the grid by telephone, you know, which is what we did 20 years ago. You know, I would say from the also from the political standpoint, you know, they have parliament, they have a parliament too, and they have parliamentary elections in June. And we'll kind of see um, if Macron wins, what kind of coalition he's able to develop. Because remember, his party is not an actual political party. He made it up. It's called En Marche, E.M., Emmanuel Macron. So it's just a brand new thing that he created to become this like extreme centrist. And so he's going to have to pull together a bunch of folks on either side. And Parliament is going to really dictate, you know, what either of these presidents would, you know, presidential candidates would actually be able to get done. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I also think that, you know, in the end, this is being driven by economics, right? People have to remember the French economy um, is largely government driven. I mean, something upwards of 40% plus of the entire GDP of the country is controlled by the government. And so, you know, EDF or Riva, these are all sort of names that um, are really state-owned enterprises for uh, to a great extent, right? So, um, so the economic burden of the nuclear industry is not sort of on private balance sheets like it is in the U.S. It's really on the French government balance sheet. Well, let's say France, uh, let's say Macron wins and he pushes forward the targets that uh, Hollande put in place. Um, you know, they they need to double their current capacity of wind and double their current capacity of solar. I believe wind is at 12 gigawatts, solar is at 7 gigawatts, and they'd have to double that through 2022. They're pretty far behind right now. Uh, they're probably, you know, a decade behind where they need to be in terms of growth rates. So um, there'd probably have to be some other reforms. I don't know what those would be, um, but even the sort of modest reforms that both Hollande and Macron have put in place, the, the France is, is going to have a hard time achieving those. Right. But I, I mean, I don't, I mean, I think that the lesson that we've learned in the last few years is that this stuff actually can be done quickly, right? As soon as you actually have a real um, mandate from the government, there are ways in which to solve these problems quickly. I think the challenge here has been just the fact that the French government is so involved in EDF and Arriva means that they actually can't just make quick decisions, right? There can't be a winner and loser because in this case, the loser is always the taxpayer. Okay, I know I said that I wouldn't draw that many parallels between the U.S. and France, but there is one other one that I've noticed, and it may be a tenuous one, but uh, I can't help but bring it up. So uh, Marine Le Pen has said that she wants a return to glory for the French nuclear industry. And that means keeping old plants open, expanding new plants, and basically maintaining the status quo for nuclear and ensuring that France continues to get 75%, if not more, of its electricity from nuclear power. Um, that is a, that's kind of echoes what we're hearing from the Trump administration in a, a return to glory for coal. I mean, you have an administration that's doing everything it can to sort of protect the status quo. Um, while meanwhile, things are changing very rapidly to erode the economics of coal. And the same thing's happening in France. Uh, technology competition is eroding the economics of nuclear power. So, you know, very different situations. But if we are going to draw political parallels, I think there are similarities between what Le Pen is advocating for and what the Trump administration sees as its priorities for preserving the energy mix in the U.S. Yeah, and both of those are unsustainable economically. So what she's proposing, I don't know how you support it. I think she, she would drive her country into bankruptcy. And I think the same would happen in the U.S., especially given that the president wants to have these huge tax cuts here. So I, I think you know, both of them have are going to need to think about, um, you know, how do you do this in an economically sustainable way? You know, what's interesting to me is that whatever happens here in this election, both candidates are going to be really supportive of solar. So that's going to change France's electricity mix no matter what, right? I mean, you might 
keep old plants open under Le Pen. You might build a couple new plants, but she's been explicit in her support of solar. And so that inevitably at the right levels has an impact on wholesale power markets and will inevitably have an impact on on nuclear energy generation down the road. So kind of an interesting mix of, of technologies, even though she is not supportive of wind, she's been very blatantly supportive of solar. And so it looks like France, no matter what happens, will be sort of a, a, a mid player in the global solar mix. Yeah, and I think France is also the sort of leading voice around the sort of super transmission projects uh, across Europe, right, because of its position on bodies of water. Um, the cheapest, you know, way to building transmission capacity is under, is in the water, right? And so to expand the amount of power that they can trade between themselves in the UK, themselves in Spain, Switzerland, Italy, you know, in other places. And so, I mean, I, I do think that um, France is going to play an increasingly large role around how transmission, um, you know, really uh, transmission policy impacts the decarbonization of Europe. Yeah, that's right. And we will see a significant transmission expansion um, under Macron. I mean, he's he said that uh, inherently in a renewables expansion, a transmission expansion would take place and there would be more European trading. Um, and inevitably, if you rely on more on domestic renewables, France could become a net energy importer as well, which is what Catherine was talking about in the beginning. Uh, France is a major net energy exporter. And as the resource mix change, if it changes dramatically, that that could also reverse so it has implications for the way that France interacts with the EU, which is um, always interesting to me because now renewables development um, has these broader geopolitical implications that uh, may not have been as strong before. This is the moment of the show when we stop the tape and talk about our sponsor, Keiko New Energy. We are grateful to have Keiko as a sponsor. Keiko New Energy is one of the fastest growing inverter companies in the Americas, a result of its commitment to quality, top-notch performance, and state-of-the-art technology. Keiko produces a robust portfolio of inverters for residential, commercial, and utility-scale applications. Leading developers continue to choose Keiko because of its superior engineering and unmatched levels of technical support and customer service. Keiko produces its inverters for the Americas in San Antonio, Texas, where 20% of its employees are U.S. military veterans. Keiko is ready to serve any installer or developer looking to maximize their solar production. You can learn more about Keiko's inverter models and its commitment to quality at keiko-newenergy.com. Thanks for their support. Just when you thought U.S. politics couldn't get any more uncertain, we have ourselves another potential solar trade war. This week, Suniva, a crystalline silicon manufacturer that makes uh, cells and modules based out of Georgia, filed a petition with the U.S. International Trade Commission asking it to consider new tariffs on imported solar cells and minimum prices on imported solar modules. The requested tariffs are really big, 40 cents per watt for cells and a minimum price of 78 cents per watt for solar modules. That would effectively double the price of modules here in the U.S., it would decimate the economics of many utility-scale solar projects currently in the pipeline and make America the most expensive solar country in the world. But, argues Suniva, it would allow the U.S. manufacturing base to flourish once again and encourage international companies to set up shop here. 
This is a big deal, not just because the tariff levels Saniva are suggesting are high, but because of the way it's filing the complaint, which gives President Trump a ton of power to exercise his judgment. We're going to explain all of that. But first, how does the way Saniva filed this complaint under Section 201 of the 1974 Trade Act make it so unique? Catherine, what is Section 201? Yeah, so what under this section, it's domestic industries that feel like they're seriously injured or threatened um, by increased imports from some from some some competitors of that industry can petition for import relief. It's short-term basis and it's outside of the border treaties. So it could impact anything coming in in a specific industry sector if it's an import from anywhere. And when they can, when they do this is that they need to get a petition from a trade association or a firm or a certified or recognized union or a group of workers, or they can get it from Congress, or they can just come up with it on its own. But what they then have to do is they have to make an injury finding within 120 days and then um, come up with its own remedy and transmit this report or recommended remedy, transmit the report to the president with these recommendations, and then the president can take a determination on that. And the president can can decide to take their their recommendation um, if their finding is affirmative, or he can decide to do whatever he wants to do. He has an enormous amount of latitude. Um, but I'm I'm curious about what Jigger thinks about this too, because this does seem to be short term, but also Seneva has a tiny piece of manufacturing. So I don't even quite understand how they're able to file this given that it, it's supposed to be for a sector, you know, a broader swath rather than just one company. And as of yet, the solar industry has not banded behind Seneva's complaint. So Solar World, the German manufacturer that set in motion the anti-dumping case at the Commerce Department in 2011, is being very cautious about this one. And I suspect because this is such a broad-based complaint that it would apply to cells and other solar materials from all over the world, and Solar World imports materials from a bunch of different countries. And so this would inevitably raise their costs as well. And and that's something that I think we're all going to start to figure out. So Solar World did kind of say, yeah, we support taking action against unfair trade practices, but we're not ready to step up and support this posi- this petition. Um, not to hijack your question here, Catherine, but I'm just actually curious, Jigger, if you can tell us a little bit about the difference between Section 201 itself and, and um, what a, how an anti-dumping or countervailing duties case works at the Commerce Department. Because as I described in a piece yesterday, the Commerce Department process is more like a scalpel and Section 201 is more like a hammer. Yeah, so I don't know that I'm going to be able to answer the question in great detail except to say that, the, that what we went through the last time was specifically around a country and there was a lot of sort of legal work to be done, right? So there had to be diligence completed, uh, Department of Commerce employees had to actually review data, they had to decide which companies were providing how much dumping. There was a lot of back and forth, but more importantly, there was also um, an ability to sort of say, um, you can't front run the decision so that anyone who bought panels sort of in the last 60 days or 90 days or six months, you know, um, could have retroactive duties. And so there's a lot of complication. It sort of took two years where this is sort of a 120-day process. 
Um, so it's much quicker. I mean, the more that I look at it, the more that I think that this is actually just um, a scheme on behalf of Suniva to get money. So I don't actually think that this is genuine in any way, although they might be dumb enough to allow Trump to do something stupid. Um, it, basically, under the trade case that we went through earlier, a bunch of money was assembled in the duties that were paid by the Chinese companies. That money is trapped at the Department of Commerce, right? So that money doesn't go to Solar World to actually, um, you know, pay them for the harm that was done to them, unless there's a a deal that struck between the Chinese companies who paid the payments and Solar World, and so Solar World's been trying to get that money, and the Chinese uh, companies have not released it to them. And so my sense is this is actually a play by Suniva to say, cut us in on that deal. And actually pay us that money, and we'll make this go away. And doesn't Suniva have to prove in this two hundred one filing that the reason they're going bankrupt is because of trade practices? It doesn't have to be necessarily an unfair trade practice in and of itself, but that it has sustained injury, serious and substantial injury as a result of our trading practices. And I I don't know if they're going to be able to parse that within their bankruptcy. It does. Uh, so, Jigger, I'm, I don't know that I can comment on your speculation there. And basically, what I can only comment on is what the you know 580 page petition says, and what petition what Suniva is willing to say um, in carefully calculated words to the press. So, I think you know it remains to be seen what their motivations are. But we can assume, based upon the filing itself, that yes, they believe that. Broad trade practices from um, Asia specifically, but from other countries, uh, you know, have damaged the industry broadly in the United States. And they are seeking sense. They're owned by the same parent company of Suntech. Oh, right. Well, we can get into that. Right. I'm I'm trying to explain what they are claiming and they are claiming industry wide injury. And so therefore, they believe they have cause to file this Section 201 petition, which will enable them to issue tariffs from products all over the world. They have a very high bar, though, at the International Trade Commission. So they have to prove serious injury. And uh, that is a higher bar than what Solar World had to prove during the anti-dumping and countervailing duties case. Um, but nonetheless, yes, Catherine, that is that is basically what they're claiming. They're claiming industry-wide damage, not just damage to themselves. Yeah, and I don't I don't know that the bar is that high. In these trade cases, it's actually quite subjective, and my sense is that, you know, like if they wanted to follow through with it and the Trump administration wanted to follow through with it, they could get it done. But I honestly don't see the end game here, right? If you're playing chess here, I just don't see it. Like, it's, it feels to me like, you know, right now the Chinese companies have no incentive to settle with SolarWorld just because they hate each other. But like Suniva is creating an event by which the Chinese companies like sort of um, would get benefit out of settling with Solar World and releasing that money that the Department of Commerce is holding and cut themselves in on it. I, I can't see any other reason for why they would take this step. It doesn't actually help Suniva. It certainly doesn't help help Suntech um, in in China. And it, it just it feels like. Um, it feels like the, that, you know, like there's really no other play here. 
Well, that settlement is a big question, and I am not, uh, I don't remember all the details of that settlement, but basically it gets, the settlement is around 60 cents per watt on average for modules, is that correct? So what Suniva is asking for is significantly higher than that that settlement that we got a while back. Right, but there's no reason to ask for any settlement. I mean, that's the stupid thing, right? Is that the fact that they 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 put that into the 580 pages signals to me what their move is, right? That this particular petition has nothing to do with the previous case. Like there's actually no legal way for them to tie the two together. So the fact that they even referenced that pot of money and how they wanted a piece of it as part of their remedies means that that's what this whole game is about. Let's get to two things. I want to get to the politics of this. And Catherine, I'm really curious about how this plays into Trump's agenda. But first, let's talk about how this impacts the downstream market. So I just explained that uh, $0.78 cents a watt for modules, again, would double the price of modules that uh, utility-scale developers are currently paying for. Um, there are a lot of developers that are now bidding at $0.04 or $0.05 cents, uh, per per kilowatt hour for PPAs, and uh, that would decimate the economics of those projects. Um, you're you're looking at some pretty serious impacts here. Do you want to comment, Jigger, on on what you think the downstream impact would be if, say, the ITC or the Trump administration agrees with those price thresholds? Sure. I mean, I think the better way of saying this is the last time this sort of thing was done. Um, was when the Bush administration put tariffs on steel in 2002, which amazingly Wilbur Ross was a part of, who's now the Department of Commerce Secretary. Um, And in the final analysis, most um, academics believe the action had unintended and perverse effects on the U.S. steel industry. So the downstream markets in the U.S. steel industry lost 200,000 jobs and roughly $4 billion in wages from February to November of 2002 as a result of the 201 um, tariffs. And on top of that, the steel industry actually shrunk. The manufacturing industry shrunk from monthly steel production of 8,000 metric tons a month down to 6,800 metric tons a month. So in fact, I think the data shows that this is actually the wrong way to protect an industry. It not only has enormous downstream negative impacts, in this case, more jobs were lost in the downstream steel industry than all of the jobs in the steel industry. Um, But it also actually didn't even help the steel manufacturers. Let's get into the politics of this. Catherine, Trump, his camp at least, uh, during the campaign, actually called out Section 201 as it related to protecting the steel industry. Of course, Trump has not talked at all about the solar industry, but now Suniva has basically handed this to him on a silver platter and said, you want to do something about trade? Well, now you have your opportunity. And so this seems to be an easy win for the Trump administration, assuming the ITC actually finds um, serious injury and agrees with Suniva. And then, of course, the president can just do whatever he wants. Um, How does this fit into his trade agenda? And do you think, even though he hasn't really talked about solar, it'd be something that he'd want to act on? Yeah, so there are a couple hurdles they have to get over. One is that the petition first needs to be taken up. So they need to grant the petition first. And so there are a lot of political, there's some political pressure you can put on with with the industry and with the their congressional champions to try to you know push back on that. 
then when if the if the ITC takes up a case and presents a report depending on what that says you know it just totally depends on who the president is listening to you're right that it does fit in the into the narrative but i don't know to what level this rises to to, to his radar and and his people's radar screen so um it just really will depend on who he's listening to at the time and if you look at his group of folks that he listens to on the business side you know it could it could go either way on who he's listening to at any given time so i just have no predictions on what he would do you're right it feeds into his narrative um about taxing you know imports but uh, i i don't know that there's a that there's a, any there's i don't know that there's any clarity as to what he would actually do so john gurley yesterday um, a, a trade trade lawyer and uh, partner at Aaron Fox, who's uh, worked on high profile trade cases, said he put action over 50 percent. But he said he was also careful about uh, not knowing what the Trump administration would do. So there's just a lot of natural volatility in Trump's decision making. And it's very unclear. But he said that when cases like this are brought, there's a really good chance that action will be taken. Yeah, so I take agree. that for what it's worth. Yeah, I agree with that. I think I talked to Lynn Fisher Fox, who was actually at the Department of Commerce during the trade cases, and now is, um, um, you know, a international trade attorney um, at uh, Arnold Porter, and um, and she sort of said the same thing that if you know if this really gets all the way through the process, it's likely to be, you know, like found that the president actually has the right to do something, um, and and I think this president doesn't really care about the downstream impacts of solar, and so like I think. He would actually, you know, do stupid things here. So I really, I mean, like, I think that my advice here is that the Chinese companies who basically have control of these funds that they um, put forward in paying their duties, like, should cut a deal with Solar World, and Solar World should cut in Cineva, and we could all get on with our lives. I, I hear hammering behind you. Are you, like, in the middle of a module assembly factory? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This, Hil- this Hilton lobby has suddenly gotten very busy. A big busload of people, I think, just came in. <laughs> They're just curious about what you're talking about about this this explosive trade case. Exactly. Sorry, guys. Uh, no problem. The, the The last piece, I guess, I'll I'll ask about is the geopolitical piece, and it's also very speculative. So you have this moment in time when the Trump administration is considering walking away from the Paris climate deal. And of course, there's a lot of debate within the administration itself about whether to stay or whether to go. This is causing consternation among the Europeans in particular, but also the Chinese and the Indians. And so the climate policy has been really baked into geopolitics and into international diplomacy. And now all of a sudden you have this potential decision where Trump could say, we're going to slap tariffs on solar products from around the entire world. And this adds another point of contention in an already strained relationship as it relates to energy and climate. Either of you have any thoughts on that? It just seems to me that um, there are broader implications to this decision beyond just the tariffs themselves, that it feeds into this broader question about how Trump and the administration will engage on energy and climate policy. 
Yeah, you know, everything is so uncertain. And I think one of the things that has been the most damaging is the kind of capriciousness and, you know, one day saying one thing and the next something completely different and different people saying different things within the administration. And so what that creates is this like lack of credibility when we say something. And I think that, you know, this speaking to, you know, yesterday, the president said one minute that he was going to pull out a NAFTA. And the next minute he said he wasn't. So I think all of this feeds into this sense of, are we even to be believed? Well, I mean, and and Rick Perry was very clear at the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Conference that he was all about exporting LNG. And, you know, the countries that came together against the steel tariffs are the EU, Brazil, China, Japan, Korea, New Zealand, Norway, and Switzerland, many of whom actually want, you know, to buy this LNG from the U.S. And so... My sense is their LNG negotiations are going to be quite a bit more complicated if they you know, move forward with the 201 petition here. Well, I suspect that we're going to have some heated debates over this one coming up. Um, let's go into our third topic just very briefly. We're going to talk about coal-free Britain and coal-free Europe and coal-free other countries. So since 1882, when the first coal plant opened in Britain, the country hasn't gone a day without burning that black rock. But last Friday marked the first 24-hour period when not a single electron was generated domestically. It's part of a trend both in Britain and in most of Europe. Two-thirds of British coal plants have shut down in the last five years, in fact. And just a few weeks ago, Europe's biggest utilities said they won't build any more coal plants after 2020. So are we about to see a wave of industrialized countries go coal-free permanently? Jigger. Is Britain's coal-free day an important marker or just a good headline for journalists like me? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I I think that, you know, I start with sort of Jess Schenkelman's uh, piece from last week that we referenced around the fact that several EU countries are going to be coal-free over the next five to seven years. And I think that's a big deal because it basically starts to destroy the coal supply chain. It starts to get people recognizing that there's really no sort of hope for that left and it starts people transitioning to what's next, whether it's gas or new transmission lines or other things, right? I mean, I've said for a long time that, that, I mean, one of the reasons I don't want California, for instance, right away, increasing their balancing, you know, grid to Oregon and Nevada right away is I want to force them to, you know, be knowledgeable about grid edge technologies and all these other solution sets. And, and I do think that, that the coal free day is a very great um, headline, but it really requires the UK, which has the, frankly, I think the most modern um, grid system in the country from a regulatory standpoint, to really start to allow all these innovators to price properly their technology into the marketplace. Yeah, it shows that there are a lot of inexpensive and flexible solutions. Um, I mean, certainly renewables are getting more um, are getting cheaper by the minute, but there are all kinds of storage and there's certainly cheap solutions through transmission and smart grid and demand response and more integrated markets. So I think this speaks to you can do it five years ago. The UK was 40% coal, and today they're 9%. By 2025, they're going to shutter all their plants. That is a big deal, and it shows that you can do it in a way that is economically viable. Um, I was I had coffee with Sonia Agarwal this morning, who's been doing a lot, and she's been on the show before, you all may remember. She's been doing a lot of work with countries in the EU on, you know, how do we, and, and all around the world, on, you know, what does your energy future look like? And 
Every EU country, except for Poland and Greece, has committed to no new coal plants after 2020, and they have to be phased out by 2030 in order to keep within the two degree targets. Um, Canada is coal free. And, you know, I ask her because a country like Poland is 90% coal. And that's why they've opted out of this agreement to go coal free. And I ask her, you know, how did they feel? Did they envision a world in which there isn't coal anymore. And she said, you know, they're just, they're not there yet. So, so countries that are very coal heavy, it's hard for them to envision it. But I wouldn't think if Britain can go from 40 to nine in five years, and we're at 30% in the US, and we're dropping precipitously, it can be done. So part of this is just finding cheap solutions. Yep. One more data point in the case to be made that we have reached peak coal in our show with Marianne Hitt, we talked about that coal swarm report, which showed um, just gigawatts and gigawatts and gigawatts of projects in Asia that have been canceled or delayed. Um, new coal plant constructions across the world fell by two thirds, nearly. And, uh, you know, the EU and the US are by far the leaders in retiring existing capacity. And this is also necessary, right? Going back to Europe's energy transition, the country has to retire almost all of its coal plants by uh, within the next 15 years or so if it wants to meet its pledges under the Paris climate commitment. So it's happening. And that brings us to the final segment of the show. We're going to tell you something you may not know, a little piece of insight from what we're reading or what we're talking about in our daily jobs. Jigger, what's on your plate today? What are you hearing in the lobby of the Hilton? Well, I'm hearing a lot of noise, as you guys can hear, so I apologize <laughs> for that. But um, I, I was reading um, Joel Makauer's recent piece on employee activism. There was a great study done by uh, Pravado out of St. Louis, um, and they showed that over 65% of Fortune 1000 workers um, basically expect their management teams to buy renewable energy, um, which I think is a big deal because, you know, like corporate CEOs like to keep their employees happy. And this is something that is rising to one of their bigger um, concerns and how they want their companies to show leadership. Catherine, what you got for a story? Yeah, so this is like the convening of a couple of different things that happened this week. I was at Rhode Island at the Public Utility Commission um, on a panel, which was really interesting. And Rhode Island is doing some amazing clean energy work up there and thinking about kind of the utility of the future. And then this afternoon, I have to be on a Clean Energy Canada webinar to talk about how clean energy is moving in the states. And so for background on these, I looked at this Union of Concerned Scientists report that just came out, and it's called Clean Energy Momentum and they're ranking state progress on clean energy. And they look at states, um, electricity generation and technical progress on clean energy. They look at jobs produced and pollution reduced. And they look at policy momentum and you know how is that going to impact how they move in the future. So the states that are leading the way, California is number one, Vermont number two, Massachusetts number three, 
and Rhode Island came in proudly as number four, beating out Hawaii and New York, both of which I believe they were really proud to do. Um, but this is a great report. The Union of Concerned Scientists does really, really good work. And it's worth looking at to see where everybody is and um, what different states are doing to move forward. And uh, one other thing I would just want to mention, and I think, Jigger, you may have been at the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Summit. I did not get to go this year, but Michael Liebreich's presentation on kind of like the future of energy, you know, where we are, what's the of the market and where are we moving? They're always really, really good presentations. And um, it's worth going onto the Bloomberg New Energy Finance website and looking at his presentation. And I, I know being there is probably a zillion times better, but it's really, it's he's always gets really good data. So speaking of really good data and data that actually doesn't tell the most positive story, the Brookings Institution is out with a report this week looking at clean tech patents granted by the Patent and Trademark Office. And between 2001 and 2014, they doubled in the U.S. They grew at about 7% annually. And now all of a sudden they're declining. Between 2014 and 2016, they declined by 9% each year. It's hard to know if this is a long-term trend. It's at this point difficult to know exactly why this is happening. Um, I think one of the more obvious factors is that in the post-stimulus world, when a lot of the billions and billions of dollars that the government spent on renewables dried up, uh, you naturally see a decline in activity here. But interestingly, you see um, J- Japanese and South Korean and German companies start to dominate patents uh, in storage and in transportation between 2011 and 2016. I don't really know what this shift means, but it can't mean anything good for American innovation, that's for sure. It may not mean anything bad either. I mean, I think Why do you that, say that? Well, I think that American innovation has always been where a lot of this energy leadership has come from. The Japanese have spent a tremendous amount of money on battery storage, and, and that's why Panasonic and LG Chem and Samsung out of Korea have been very successful at selling the actual cells. But a lot of the integration technology, a lot of the software, a lot of the deployment is really being led by U.S. companies. All right. Well, um, that's our conversation for the week. You just heard Jigger Shaw. I was with Catherine Hamilton. I'm Stephen Lacey. We're the Energy Gang. You can find all our episodes on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, NPR One, anywhere you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, both the Energy Gang and all three of us. Send us an email to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Don't forget to come to Solar Summit and the Grid Edge World Forum for our live shows and for a crazy amount of good material and networking. We have so many presentations, panel discussions, conversations, networking opportunities. You can get a discount. Just use Energy Gang, all one word, to get 15% discount for, for any of those events. Thanks to Keiko New Energy for sponsoring, too. We'll catch you next week. We are the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media.